This morning we're turning to continue in John chapter 8, and we're going to be picking up at John chapter 8, verse 12. Before we do so, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you give us your word. You've given us your word in total as your word to us. Genesis to Revelation, Father, there is nowhere we can turn in your word without profit, without hearing your voice. We turn today to this passage from the Gospel of John. We pray that you open our eyes, ears, our ears, our hearts uh, to understanding. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We saw when last together the first 11 verses of John 8, the passage about the woman caught in adultery. We talked about the textual questions, but understood it was right to study the passage right in the context, which we did. And uh, we said at the time that the argument found within John chapter 8 in the first 11 verses would continue, and it continues in the most amazing way, as we shall see. When Jesus turns to the woman who had been accused of adultery, and, and her accusers were present, they're the ones who brought her, and then when Jesus had written in the ground, and her accusers withdrew, interestingly, the older and then the younger, and there's no one there to accuse her, then there are no witnesses to the accusation, and thus the criminal charge disappears. That's what Jesus is saying when he says to, to her, where are your accusers? Where are those who accuse you? And she says, they are not here. And Jesus said, neither do I accuse you. Now, that, that, that's the context. Of course, then he ends with saying, go and sin no more. But then in chapter 8, verse 12, we pick up on the second of the I am statements. And it begins with the, the words, Again, Jesus spoke to them. So this appears to be one discourse. That's what John does when he helps us to see this is really one big event. And so this is probably still with Jesus at the Feast of the Tabernacles, and all of these conversations, interactions are taking place in the context of, of that one event. So Jesus is speaking to them again. Who are they to whom Jesus is speaking? Well, it would be those who would be in Jerusalem for the feast. So this would be an unusually large population of Jews who would be there in, in Jerusalem. Jesus arrived there late, as, as you'll recall, and uh, he arrived in his own timing, in, in, in the Father's timing. And uh, there has been, we have seen a series of very interesting conversation since Jesus arrived there. And now he is there and speaking again. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So just taking this one verse, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The interesting thing is how quickly the crowd moves from that statement, but we ought not to move so quickly. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Again, the ego imi in the Greek, the, the I am statements. This is, this is the I am formula that we heard from the bush that burned and was not consumed when God spoke to Moses. And when God said to Moses, who shall I say has sent me? What is your name? And the one true and living God, Jehovah, answered, I am. It's, a, it's actually a, a complicated 
name. Uh, I am that I am. It's a, it's a name of always has been and always will be. It's the simple verb to be. You might put it this way. And so this is something that's always good for us to reflect upon the fact that we are all contingent being. We've never met absolute being. We're all contingent being. We're, we're all created. We have to be explained. And so what's interesting is that no matter your worldview, you have to have an explanation for why the cosmos exists and why you exist and why these pews exist and this building exists and these windows exist and these chairs exist. They are all contingent being. They have not always been and they will not always be. They are created. Anything created is contingent, contingent upon having had to be created. Contingent means won't always be here. Uh, there is no absolute being that we have ever confronted. And, and by that, I mean not only a conscious being. We've never, we've never contemplated an unconscious object that was not contingent in its, in its essence. So even when you stand before something as, uh, as awe-inspiring as, say, the Grand Canyon, and you, you, uh, you make your, uh, your trek to the Grand Canyon, and uh, especially there at the South Rim, and, and you're looking at the Grand Canyon, to human eyes, it looks as if there never could have been a time when it was not. It's just, just the, the appearance of it. And, uh, of, of course, along would come the evolutionary scientists who would say, uh, oh yes, well, uh, of course there was a time when it was not, and everything you're looking at here is, uh, is the, the, uh, the witness of accumulated millions and millions and millions of years of erosion as water and flooding led to the eventual cutting through of the rock, and thus you look at the Colorado River, as we call it now beneath, and that, 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 that's how it happened. And uh, so there once was a time, presumably, when, uh, when the water was at the level you are now standing, but it cut through the rock to the level that you can see breathtakingly below. There was a time when it was not, there is a time now. There will be a time when it will not be again. <laughs> Whether you explain that by judgment or the collapse of being into non-being in a black hole as the galaxy comes to an end. So everything you're looking at, the planet, the, the moon, it, it, it's all contingent. By God naming himself I am, he's declaring himself to be not contingent. He, uh, he is not created. There never was a time when he wasn't, and there never will be a time when he isn't. He is simple being. Now this is what we affirm when we speak of God's uh, eternality of his aesity. This is, this is God, unchanged and unchanging, eternal, uncreated, self-existent. So Jesus here is actually saying, by using the formula I am, when he says, as we saw in John 6, I am the bread of life, and now when he says in John 8, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am not contingent. That's an astounding claim. As a matter of fact, it's so breathtaking, we could profitably just say, we're not going to talk anymore, we're just going to kind of think about this. What, what, what would it be if, if someone walked into the room and said, uh, I am the light of the world? 
Well, you know, the average American would probably not even recognize the I am and just say, well, yeah, yeah, well good for you, Mr. Light of the World. Uh, I'm the love of my life, my, my wife's life. You know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm the light of the world. But in, in a Jewish context, when Jesus says, I am, it, it's simply astounding. It, it, and, and so even in contemporary Judaism right now, uh, there is still a, a tremendous reluctance to name God, even to, to say his name. And, and so you'll often hear Jewish rabbis refer to Hashim or, uh, or, 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 or someone similar. You take an indirect name. Um, not only does Jesus not use an indirect name of the Father, now he uses the same direct claim to deity of himself. I am. But he adds to it, as he did in John 6, saying, I am the bread of life. Here he says, I am the light of the world. Okay, wait just a minute. What in the world does that mean? All of us recognize it immediately. I, I am the light of the world, okay? Well, but well, what is Jesus saying? What, what, what does it mean that he is the light of the world? Well, John already gave us an indication of what this would mean in the prologue to John's gospel. Look back to John chapter 1. The very first verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, so they're uncontingent, uncreated. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We're in a room right now that is lighted, in, a, in an hour that is lighted. You can look outside, and you didn't have to grope in the darkness to get here. You don't have to grope in the darkness in this room. The distinction between darkness and life is as fundamental to human beings as the distinction between life and death. And, uh, and that's not incidental. Light and life have, have naturally been associated, darkness and death rightly associated, and, uh, and, and we still fear the dark. If we don't fear the dark with the superstitious fears of childhood, we fear the dark with the very rational concerns of adulthood. The, the difference between light and darkness requires us also to explain well, let's put it this way, which requires the explanation. Light is not the absence of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. Light's what has to be explained. Light requires energy. Light requires a source. Darkness does not have to be explained. That's why when you look at creation in Genesis chapter 1, one of the most definitive moments of creation is when God says, let there be light. And, and by his sovereign power, when he says, let there be light, there was light. And then, of course, he will assign, he will create lights and assign them roles. The, the, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. Light requires explanation. The, the presence of light is a miracle of sorts, explainable only by the God of all lights, as he's described in the Old Testament, who, who creates light and gives it to us as his gift and of course, metaphorically then, light comes to represent several, several very important realities. First is life, and, and, and that's right here in the Gospel of John. 
Uh, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Where you find light, you find life. Where you find no light, you find no life. And by the way, that's a biological fact. Whether it's photosynthesis or, uh, or and, and by the way, that explains the crops that we're able to eat. You know, li light is required for life. Where there have been moments of long darkness, there has been starvation that has followed. Most famously, uh, after the, uh, the 19th century eruption of Krakatoa and uh, the volcanic ash that spread and got into the jet stream and spread all across either in the northern hemisphere, North America, less populated at the time, less was at stake, but Europe, more populated, more was at stake. And uh, it, it affected the crops such that people starved because of the darkening of the skies. The, the reality is that you don't have to have some kind of background on geophysics to understand the necessity of light. So the metaphorical application, light equals life. Uh, light also equals wisdom and knowledge. It, it's not an accident that, you know, for for a long time in cartoons, when someone is illuminated, a light bulb shows up over their, uh, over their heads. Which, by the way, was a, a very cultural, a very interesting cultural development in America after the ubiquity of the light bulb itself, which was something we just take for granted. There are dozens of them surrounding us right now. But uh, that early 20th century miracle of having this glass bulb you could screw into an apparatus and you turn a switch and it came on. Uh, I was recently uh, reading a book by Robert Caro, the great biographer of Lyndon Johnson, and he was trying to explain why Lyndon Johnson was so loved in the area of the Perdinalis River and uh, there, there in the, uh, the Texas Hill Country, which was his, his home. Why was he so loved? Uh, the, the Lyndon Johnson, who was president, was not often described as being loved. But he was loved by the people of the Texas Hill Country. And Robert Caro, probably the greatest living biographer, uh, and, and let's, I, I am eagerly looking forward to his fifth and final volume on Lyndon Johnson. He says, in order to understand why Lyndon Johnson was loved, you have to understand that he became a, a member of Congress as a very young man during the Great Depression. And you have to understand the Texas Hill Country at the time. The Texas Hill Country had been largely depopulated of men uh, because of the First World War and because of other issues. There, there were some men, but uh, by and large, women were, there was an abnormal number of women who were heads of households in this tremendously impoverished area of, uh, of Texas, where there was no electricity. Electricity was in the big Texas cities. It had not reached the hill country. And with the Great Depression, it didn't appear that it ever would, not in any foreseeable future. He talked about how hard life was for those living in the hill country, especially for those women who were the heads of households. He talked even about how many hours it took to do one load of laundry Without electricity, there were no electric pumps. Uh, without electricity, obviously no light. He talked about the TVA and, 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 and its development in the United States. And, but then he talked about the Rural Electrification Project 
that Lyndon Johnson as a congressman basically manipulated the federal government into funding. But uh, as government works, they strung all the lines, but they weren't connected to anything. And in houses, they would come in and they would put in some electrical lines and they would put in a light bulb and, uh, and it wasn't attached to anything. And so these people got accustomed to going into the community, seeing these telephone poles, as we call them, with the electrical wires that weren't attached to anything. And uh, they saw the light bulbs in their home and they weren't attached to anything. And uh, they stopped paying attention to them. And then one night, it all came on. And these electric light bulbs lit up in these homes that had never been illuminated at night before. And it's just so incredibly moving to hear the accounts of these mothers, some fathers there is still farming, but these mothers and their children waking each other up, having been <laughs> assaulted by this light, and being so filled with wonder, they would talk about 13 and 14-year-old boys sitting on the floor staring at this light bulb, unable to turn their gaze away. they never seen anything like it before. It was like a miracle. And one of the points that Robert Caro makes in this, in this account is that if you lived there, then everything was dated before that night and, and after that night. If, if you lived in the Texas Hill Country, it was before Lyndon got us the light and after Lyndon got us the light. And that accounts for the, that tremendous devotion. Well, I've, I've actually never known a time when, uh, when I wasn't surrounded by light bulbs. I'm sure I take them for granted. But the ability to turn on light where there had been darkness becomes the definitive memory of a childhood. What does it mean that in creation, and fallen creation, the very Son of God incarnate arrives, and it is as if the light is all of a sudden switched on. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We go back to Genesis and understand that basic distinction. Light is necessary in the sequential advance of creation. So everything in creation is before and after the light. In, uh, in, in the Psalms, of course, Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So God himself, very much identified, not only as the giver of light, but as the one who is light. But you can't think about Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world, without thinking particularly of the prophet Isaiah chapter 9, also in the first two verses. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And by the way, it's not just, it, it's, it's not just light, it's, it's light. It, it's, it's saving light. On, on them has light shined. This is salvation, and that's very clear in the context of the messianic promise that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 9, the first two verses. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Here's the interesting thing, though. As you look at the, at the Gospel of John and that introduction which we read, you'll recall that even as we are told the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, 
We're also told that there were those who wouldn't receive the light. He came to bear, well, let's look later at verses 9 and following. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but of God. So here light is salvation. So light is, is life and, and light is illumination. Now light is salvation, but we're also told that the light was in the world and it was not comprehended. And that's what we're seeing. This is judgment. This is, this is Jesus saying, have you not read the prologue to this gospel? Obviously, that's not what he was saying. That's what we're saying. We were told that the light had come into the world and that the world did not comprehend the light. And that's exactly what we are seeing fulfilled in John chapter 8, even as we look into this passage. Because as it begins with Jesus speaking to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, just ask yourself, does that not sound like almost a quotation of Isaiah 9? Even the walking in the light, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. So if indeed we could put ourselves by our imagination where Jesus was making this statement, if we, if we put ourselves at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem and we put ourselves in front of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, what would we have done with that? Well, hold that thought. Let's see what does happen. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You're bearing witness about yourself. You're making this claim about yourself. Why should we believe you when you're merely making this claim about yourself? Here's why it's so important to recognize why that passage in John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 fits the context. The textual issues notwithstanding, it definitely fits the context. The, and now we understand why, if, it were, if that passage were, which, which I believe is from the life and ministry of Jesus, if, 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 if it were inserted here later, it would be because precisely this context. Because when Jesus turned to the woman and said, where are the witnesses against her? She says, they're gone. And Jesus said, neither do I accuse you. Well, now he's being accused, just a few verses later, of not having witnesses to attest to him. So you see how the, the table's turned. Now, Jesus is being accused of merely bearing witness to himself. You say you're the light of the world. It's interesting. They, 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 don't, they don't even kind of argue that in, in its particulars. They simply try to dismiss it on the basis of... of insufficient witness. You're the light of the world? Says who? Where is the attestation? Now, of course, you can back up a moment and say, what in the world would that look like? What would that look like? What are they demanding? Well, it's not clear what would satisfy them, which is another point in the New Testament, another point particularly in the Gospel of John. When someone says, I'm not going to believe unless this happens, when that happens, they don't believe. But, but it, this is a technical argument, and let me give you a warning in advance. It's, it's going to get more technical, but the point is actually easy to understand. 
So they have said to Jesus, you're bearing testimony about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. So Jesus at first lifts himself out of their scope of scrutiny and says, you bunch of idiots couldn't figure me out anyway. You have no idea where I came from. You have no explanation for my authority. You, you can't explain this because you won't. You won't. Now, hold on. He's not actually accepting that there aren't witnesses. He's just saying, you guys aren't even being intellectually honest. But he continues, he continues. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Again, this is technical, but you can get the point very clearly. Jesus is saying, number one, uh, the attestation is here, you just won't see it. Uh, you don't know who I am because you don't have a clue where I came from or where I'm going. And then when he says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one, he means in that context according to the flesh, which is to say, again, so exactly what we have in John chapter 3, where we're told Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, uh, but, but rather the world might be saved. But then John goes on to explain, but that doesn't mean that the world's not condemned. The world was condemned before Jesus came. It was already under condemnation. So Jesus did not have to come for the world to be under condemnation. It already is. And so Jesus did not come to judge in that sense because the world's already been judged. It's already been found guilty. And he says, that's, that's not what I'm doing. But if, if I did do it, uh, my judgment is true. Why? Because he says, I'm not judging alone, but I am the Father who sent me. The Father who sent me. Now, the Father language is unmistakable here. So those hearing Jesus would not misunderstand this. They wouldn't misunderstand when he talks of the Father. This is, uh, this, this is the name of God. They understand what he's saying there. But the, the Father sent the prophets. Uh, the Father sent many prophets. So the singularity of the sending is not yet as clear as it will be. It will be very clear. In verse 17, here's the technical part. He says, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Now, is that true or false? Well, it is true. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. It is interesting that the context there is murder. You, can, you cannot bring uh, a capital murder charge against someone without two eyewitnesses of the murder. That becomes very important, very, very important, because... In, in, a, uh, in, in, in a society like ancient Israel, or in many places today, um, you can basically murder someone by getting them accused of murder with insufficient evidence. That's been done before. It's been done before, and uh, the, the God in his mercy to Israel does not want that to happen. And so to Israel, he gives the law that before a capital crime can be punished with the death penalty, there must be attestation, eyewitnesses, two of them, 
to the murder itself. Now, that means that an awful lot of murders then could not have been uh, responded to with the death penalty, but, uh, but, but that, was, that was God's law. It, it, it requires witnesses. And so, this pattern of witnesses gets driven through Israel's experience, not just for the death penalty for murder, but for anything else. Uh, not just one witness, you need two witnesses. And uh, so, this dual witness requirement becomes driven through Jewish culture, and, and, and they're, they're throwing this at Jesus, saying, you're standing here alone. You're standing here alone. You, are, you have no witnesses. But then Jesus interestingly says, well, actually I do, and actually I have two. I am bearing witness of myself, and the Father is even now bearing witness of me. Now, we always have to explain, especially reading the Gospel of John and the, the dynamic of opposition to Jesus that comes so early, we have to explain why they were so intent to crucify Jesus. Well, here's part of it right now. Jesus just said, the Father bears witness of me. Now, uh, the audacity of that, just think, if, if a mere human being said that, then this would basically upturn the entire law. If, if, if you can claim that by your very presence, you are not one but two witnesses, it's exactly what Jesus is saying. Well, th then they try to turn it back on him, as you see in verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now, what is being set up here is what's going to follow in a passage we're going to have to look at next week in detail, in which, frankly, um, we're going to have to understand what Jesus theologically thought of Judaism in the first century. It's, it's, it's a really, really important issue. That's, that's where this is going, and that's going to take a bit of time, but it's really important for us because it will, it will help to explain to us what's at stake in uh, the evangelization of the Jewish people. What's at, what's at stake uh, in... in in what happened in the 20th century of more liberal theologians coming up with a two-covenant theology saying that, that uh, Christians are not obligated to share the gospel with Jews. We're, we're, we're going to see that Jesus is going to answer all those questions right, right in the uh, context of John chapter 8. But we're not there yet. Where we are right now is in the question of witnesses. And, and they said, then where is your father? Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. You're going to hold that. That's what's going to come up later. He's telling them they don't know the father. This is the most astounding verse yet. Jesus is saying to the sons of Israel, you don't know God. It's, it's an astounding statement. And, and this, this theologically is extremely important for us because we have to understand that there are only two options. There are only two options. And that is that every single human being either worships the one true and, and living God or is some form of idolater. Now, I say some form of idolater, meaning at least the conception of God or the conception of reality is something other than the, the self-existent, self-revealing God of Scripture. The astounding thing that Jesus is saying here, and, and 
again, if you're explaining why they killed Jesus, just understand they're about to understand. They don't understand yet, but they're about to understand that Jesus just told them that they don't even know the God they think they're worshiping. Where is your father? Well, interesting you ask. You don't know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. The treasury is a, a, a separate structure in the precincts of the, uh, of, of the court of the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour has not yet come. That's why Jesus explained earlier in chapter 7. That's why he did not go to the Feast of the Tabernacles when others suggested he go. Uh, because he said, my hour's not yet come. And now, now we're told again, his hour's not yet come. That's always basically a reference to his crucifixion. And so he was not arrested. The father did not allow him to be arrested at this point because it's, the time is not right. Then the conversation continues, verse 21. So he said to them again. You'll notice how many agains we've already, we've already seen just in this short passage. He said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, that, that means the assembly before him, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Let's just pause there for a moment. So when we saw Jesus say, uh, when they say, where's your father? He says, well, you don't know me, nor do you know my father. Uh, if you did know me, you would know the, my father. And he's clearly speaking about God. They don't see that. They, they don't see it yet. When they see it, they're not going to like it, but they don't see it yet. And so you have this enormous puzzlement. And, and again, we, we put ourselves in that context and we say, well, we would understand these things clearly. Well, we have no basis uh, to make the assumption that we would understand what those in this crowd did not understand. And, and furthermore, this is admittedly a convoluted argument. Jesus says many things. And, and all of this we understand because of what we already know from the Gospel of John. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Okay, I understand. we understand that. You are from below. I'm from above. We understand that. Uh, you are of this world. I'm not of this world. We understand that. And then look at verse 24 again. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. This is, this is John 3.16. For God's love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. The great distinction after the distinction between theism and everything else is the distinction between those who believe in Christ and, and everyone else. When I did the Ask Anything event at the University of Southern California just a few months ago, uh, I guess the most interesting, maybe the most tense moment in the, in the event was when a Muslim stood up and said, and, and he was being very friendly in a very Muslim, authentic way. Uh, this is uh, having been in the Muslim world and spoken in Muslim uh, context. I, I understand exactly what's going on here. By the way, a little footnote. On the briefing, I talked about the fact that American secularists were appalled when Secretary Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, 
uh, speaking in a Muslim country, identified himself as an evangelical Christian and spoke of his Christian conviction. And, and so you had major newspapers in the United States saying, well, that's so out of bounds for a United States Secretary of State to identify himself as a religious believer, much less as a Christian. Does he, doesn't he know they're Muslims? Well, yes, but the people writing these news articles don't understand Islam. And Islam, if you identify as a Christian, then you're identifying as one who believes in God. The, uh, the anxiety in the room goes down enormously. In the Muslim world, if they think you are not a God believer, the anxiety goes up. The Muslim can understand. The Muslim world understands a Christian showing up as a Christian. The Muslim world does not understand someone showing up as secular. That's so outside the category. And so this man who came to the USC event as a Muslim, speaking in that light, said to me, wouldn't it be good if we could stop speaking of the differences between us and just say that we want to recognize all God-believers as, uh, as believers and, uh, and direct our attention to the non-God believers. And he had a smile on his face, a lot of energy in his voice, and he expected me, I think, to say yes, but I had to say no. And, and it's because the, the Bible, uh, the New Testament, let's make this clear, the New Testament does not make the major division between those who believe in God and those who do not. The, instead, the division is those who believe in Christ and those who do not. Uh, and, and that's nowhere more clear than in the Gospel of John. John, the fourth Gospel, is where that's made abundantly clear, and that's what we're going to see next week. We're going to see Jesus tell them that they don't know God, that the Jews, rejecting Him, do not know the Father. It's an astounding claim. It, 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 it's so astounding that it has led some to argue that the Gospel of John is just irreparably anti-Semitic. Uh, that's, that's the argument of modern theological liberals. It's not anti-Semitic. It's anti-sin. It's anti-unbelief. But it, it, it's going to be very honest, as we shall see, and that, that, I, there's just so much hanging on what we will have the honor of looking to next week. But you can see where Jesus is going right now. And, uh, and, and they don't understand it. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. When he was talking about his father, they didn't understand he was talking about the father. So, verse 28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So Jesus says, when you lifted up the Son of Man, again, John chapter 3, uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, even as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so also must I be lifted up, must the Son of Man be lifted up. And, and so he speaks continually. This is also the reference, my, my hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Uh, the time for his crucifixion has not yet come. But Jesus says, you know, here's the thing. When you crucify me, you're going to know who I am. Now, now, to what exactly does that refer? Well, maybe it refers to the fact that he was identified as the king of the Jews, even on what was nailed to his cross. Maybe, maybe it's because 
Maybe it's because they would connect prophecy and Jesus' own words about what would happen to him. And Jesus says, oh, you're, you're going to know who I am, but uh, you're not going to know who I am until you crucify me. The logic is very clear. He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Very similar to what he will say when he says, I and the Father are one. But look at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Again, think of John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. While he's saying these things, many believed in him. Now, isn't that a surprising end to this very convoluted passage? We're just told that they didn't know he was talking about the Father, and they didn't know who he was. They even turned to him and asked that interesting question, who are you? It's the most amazingly honest question, I guess, you know, who are you? But they wanted, they weren't looking for him to say Jesus of Nazareth. They're looking for him to explain himself, which he does, and they don't understand it. Now, the, the theme here is that they don't understand it because they really don't know the Father. If they really knew the Father, then they would know Him. To know Him is to know the Father. To know the Father is to expect Him and to recognize Him when He comes. But astoundingly enough, this passage ends by telling us, as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Well, what did they believe about Him? What does it mean that they believed in Him? That's going to become a very important question in the passage that follows. But we'll have to wait until next Sunday for that. For now, we need to go back most importantly to verse 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the light of the world. Jesus is basically saying, you're saved. You're saved. The, the, the light has come. The, the light is with you now. I am the light of the world. Well, this is Jesus revealing himself, and we see the pattern of the crowd's confusion. There is much clarity coming, to which we will turn next week. But isn't it amazing that we are here this morning precisely, irreducibly, because Jesus is the light of the world. And those who follow him do not walk in darkness, but in the light. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in the name of the light of the world. We confess Jesus Christ as the light of the world. We thank you for the light that has come. And Father, we pray that we will be those who walk in the light as he is the light. And with inexpressible joy, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.